0: Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $191 billion in assets under management committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. Happy summer to our listeners, and I hope you all had a relaxing Memorial Day weekend. We are embarking on the first- mostly maskless summer since 2019, and we'll actually be taking real vacations from our time back in the office. Another big change has been the rapid withdrawal of stimulus from the economy, which has pressured equity so far this year, especially growth stocks. More defensive sectors like healthcare have held up better, and we will delve into this area with today's guest, Marshall Gordon a senior healthcare analyst at ClearBridge and regular podcast participant who is with me in our Manhattan studio, and Jean Yu, a portfolio manager for the ClearBridge Value Equity Strategy who is joining us remotely from Baltimore. Jean, I believe this is your first time remote on the ClearBridge podcast, so welcome and Marshall, always great to have you on. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Medical professionals, clinics, and hospitals are also making strides towards normalcy with the return of elective procedures, dentist appointments, and other health care priorities that many of us were forced to put off due to COVID. We will address the ongoing risks and opportunities in the sector in today's podcast, Navigating a Reopening in healthcare. Now, I'm telling you, for the last couple of weeks, I've been really excited to talk about healthcare. I think this is a really good area of opportunity, especially at this point in the cycle, I mean, healthcare is a defensive sector and valuations are quite compelling. And this is a year of transition where the economy was going to transition to early to late cycle. Accommodation was going to transition from being very loose to tight. And obviously, we anticipated some volatility and downward pressure in the markets overall. And not surprisingly, healthcare is the best, uh, the fifth best performing sector here year to date, uh, because it does well in these types of environments. But this is clearly a macro driven environment with the the Fed tightening and interest rates rising and, and growth slowing. So I want to talk about the macro risks first. And, and Marshall, I'm going to turn to you on, on some of the industries in healthcare that are dealing with some of these macro risks. Now, you had released a note to the investment teams a week ago um, talking about some of these risks. And one of them that I found interesting was the supply chain impacts on medical devices. What are you seeing in that space? That's really been an interesting
2: surprise in 2022. This is something that we didn't really see coming and has definitely emerged as a real issue for companies that make medical devices, particularly those that are sort of electromechanical in nature. The thing is, compared to most of the other sectors in healthcare, medical device companies make real things. They make implants that go into bodies and pacemakers, and they make defibrillators that people use in hospitals. And they've had challenges like every other manufacturing company in sourcing material inputs. A lot of it's been around microchips, but also to some extent, things like plastic resins, which are petrochemical, and metals with the situation in the Ukraine, titanium, as well as some more rare type metals. And there are also structural impediments to working around some of these either supply issues in terms of actually securing supply or the cost of that supply. In that they can't change the production inputs because of FDA regulation. These are very heavily regulated devices. So if you have one chip and you need to put in a different one, you. You can't do that. And sub it in, yeah. And then the other thing is that a lot of the companies, particularly at the higher end, have contracts preventing price increases with hospitals. They enter into multi-year contracts, oftentimes that they're deflationary rather than inflationary, so they can't necessarily pass through their costs quickly in this environment. The one thing I would say is that this is probably more of an acute problem, and as we see things like the chip shortages get better, or new supply come on for different types of commodities, or, you know, oil being sourced from different parts of the world. I think that this is going to probably blow over more quickly than average, but it's definitely something that is weighing on results in 2022. And, you know, it probably takes a lot of the earnings upside potential out of those
0: stocks. Well, not surprisingly, if you're looking at devices, it's one of the rare areas in healthcare that's not doing as well as the the rest of the sector.
2: And a lot of it has been on that because a lot of this emerged in the first quarter where companies were starting to warn, oh, my God, we are missing sales, for instance, because we don't have enough chips to make our defibrillators, and so we're shipping fewer than we had expected. Same thing across the board in terms of the costs. These companies are finding
0: their costs much higher in terms of cost of goods. Now I want to switch over to another one of the risks that you highlighted in the note. More specifically, labor impacts on hospitals. Now, if you look at healthcare, and you look over the last twelve months, healthcare has seen the biggest increase of postings out of any industry, at about six hundred and fifty-seven thousand. So there's this insatiable thirst for demand, and people aren't there, right? I mean, what, what uh, yeah, you, I
2: mean it, this is this has been brewing for quite some time, and. The changes that we've seen, I think, more broadly in the U.S. labor force in terms of participation or how much employment, if you will, people are willing to supply is becoming particularly acute in the healthcare sector. And it's the supply of nurses as well as techs and other people that work in hospitals and that work in you know just really almost any medical interaction in offices, in surgery centers, clinics, et cetera. And the hospital's Almost all the hospitals have actually brought down numbers for this year, and it's been on labor costs. So part of it is that they're having trouble fully staffing and when they do find staff, it's at a much, much higher cost, particularly on the nursing side, and that's the biggest cost within the hospital. And there are some real structural obstacles to passing on rising labor costs. The hospitals typically sign long-term contracts with managed care, and these are two, three-year contracts. Which which we've never seen wage growth or inflation at these levels. Or at least in 10, 10 15 years. So it was never an issue. There was never an issue of having to pass on these costs, but now they're in these contracts. The hospitals are in these contracts with managed care. Managed care is definitely not letting them out of them. And the hospitals are are very much getting their margins are very much getting pinched. The way I look at it, it makes hospitals very much uninvestable and we don't have very much exposure across the firm. And it does seem that managed care is actually nicely insulated because of the sort of three year rolling contracting. It's just going to take a lot of time to even start to see that pressure. And they could definitely price a of that. So I don't see very much risk there. The other thing is that at the margin, the hospitals are having trouble finding enough staff to staff all of their ORs and ERs. And so you are seeing some pressure on actual volumes within hospitals in terms of procedures. Now, the one thing I would say there is for the med tech companies, It's less likely to be those procedures. A lot of the procedures like hips and knee replacements or the cardiology area, those procedures, those are actually pretty profitable. And the hospitals will make sure those get done because that's the core of their profitability. But at the margin, you are seeing, I think, some constraint on the number of procedures that can be done, particularly more along the lines of general surgery or
0: things like that that might be slightly less profitable for hospitals. And I want to highlight one more risk, which we're seeing across not only in biotech or medtech, early stage, but in early stage companies, generally speaking, is this lack of capital market financing that's available there. What do you see? Are you can have a, a lot that's of really big That's minute? a really big
2: deal, particularly for the biotechs. But as well, it cuts into medical devices because there are early-stage companies there, as well as in diagnostics, where there's been a huge crop of companies coming up with new genomic-based diagnostics. And you go back a couple years, there was a very free-flowing capital market. The amounts raised for biotech in twenty. 20- 21 were truly record setting. And now the capital markets are largely shut to these companies. And what you're seeing is a pullback in valuations because in some cases, sort of mortal risk for these companies to run out of money. And that's before they can realize greater value by reaching clinical milestones or regulatory milestones, things like good data. Path to profitability. Path to profitability. So, you know, look, I don't think the capital markets are going to stay shut forever, but we do expect a rationalization of a lot of these companies that were funded over the past two, three years, and it's going to be in biotech, I think primarily, but also – to a certain extent, in med tech and in some of the diagnostics areas, and we're in the early innings of this process. You're actually for the first time starting to see announcements of companies cutting programs, downsizing because they're worried about running out of cash and the runways that they have.
0: The and, and you're starting to see initial jobless claims pick up, right? Not surprising. You're seeing some tech layoffs. You're seeing layoffs in biotech and a lot of these. Yeah, you, you really are. Starting to hunker down.
2: It's smaller. It's smaller in scale now. I think the one implication that we're watching for very closely is the downstream impact on contract research organizations, as well as the life sciences tools companies. Because if you're a biotech, you're relying on contract research organizations for help with your clinical trials. You're buying research and development tools, both machines and the reagents that you use to run experiments. And so we're starting to see at least some caution in the getting to be priced into those types of stocks in terms of tools and contract research organizations. The one thing I would say is that we really haven't seen that yet in their results, but people are starting to anticipate that. And I think that that's a reasonable and smart anticipation in terms of that. And we're watching out for that very closely for the investments that we have in those areas.
0: And I think this sets conversation that Gene has been talking about and how they've been positioning in their portfolio about areas of opportunity in the macro environment. The opposite of needing a lot of capital and not being able to access the capital markets are big tech biopharma that has large pockets and a ton of cash. I mean, I think I saw a statistic out there the other day that pharma, large cap pharma has enough cash to completely buy out the entire mid and small cap biotech sector at this point. So they are stuffed to the gills with cash. So Jean, talk to me a little bit about the opportunities that you're finding in that space.
1: That's exactly right, Jeff, what you just said. And that's One of the big reasons that we really like the large-cap pharmaceutical and biotech space. I mean, first of all, their valuation is still pretty compelling. They were trading at 40% discount to the market at the end of last year. And despite very impressive performance here today, they're still trading at more than 20% discount. More importantly, though, this group does provide several highly sought-after attributes in today's environment. First, their defensive top line really give very good protection as investors worry about slowing growth and recession risks. And second, they're very resilient in the inflationary environment. As opposed to what Marshall talked about in MedTech, the drug companies have 90% growth margin, and therefore, They're just not as sensitive to the input cost, inflation, or the higher freight cost. And they also have very strong pricing power. Finally, they're strong cash flow generators. Many of them also have very high dividend yield relatively in the market. And all of those really position them pretty well for higher rates. And after all of this, there's a bonus point. The collapse in the small-cap biotech space that Marsha just discussed earlier is a boon to these companies. Russell 2000 Small Cap Biotech Index has fallen 67% since it peaked in February last year.
0: Wow, that's massive.
1: This means that the price tag for the purchase external R&D just got slashed by two-thirds for these large-cap drug companies. And I'm sure they're very happy and I see many of them especially the ones that have a lot of cash from selling COVID vaccines and treatments in past two years to really go on a shopping spree soon.
2: I was going to add that you look at a company like Pfizer, Pfizer has been among the most successful in terms of its COVID strategies. They've talked about having $100 billion for Pfizer alone to deploy for M&A and business development deals. And then you, you know, you look. That's a a one with 11 zeros. That's a one with 11 (laughs) zeros. And that's one company. And you look across the companies. There's so many self-help stories in pharma in Europe and in the United States. And a lot of these companies are spinning off divisions. They're selling unwanted or underloved businesses that they have. And so many of them are, not only are they cash generative, but they're also finding themselves with investments that they're selling for tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, or even tens of billions of dollars. And they're going to redeploy a lot of that. And Gene's absolutely right. Biotech's kind of on sale here. I think it's not going to end up being quite that cheap because good assets, there are a number of players out there with a lot of cash and they're going to compete for good assets. But at the same
0: time, at least the starting point for those negotiations is a bit lower. Well, yeah, if your stock is down 70, 80, 90%, you're going to get a healthy premium to that. All smart management teams would obviously negotiate a better deal. And it does take some
2: time for management teams to really sort of internalize the fact that their stock is not what they once thought it would be in terms of its value. And so people are waiting till maybe the, the back half of this year and the next uh, before they really sort of capitulate on some of that in terms of the management teams within the biotech world.
1: To support what Marshall just said, the recent deal that Pfizer made, I think they paid 70% premium, but stocks up, Pfizer stocks up. I mean, obviously, the acquired company stocks up as well. I think that shows the market figures it out. That is a good deal for both.
2: And that was, by the way, either kind of close to or just right around or maybe even slightly lower than that stock's 52 week high. So even if they're going up quite a bit, they're still getting
0: it at or below the prior peaks. Well, you know, looking at M and A, it looks like there's been about thirteen billion worth of M and A in the sector so far year to date. Traditionally, it's around fifty billion. So they're waiting for better vantage point later in the year. Is that kind of the feel at this point?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's it's not as much a vantage point as it is. I think it just takes time for the management teams at these biotechs to really come to terms with where their valuations are. So if you're a company that had a $3 billion market cap six months ago, it's hard to think of yourself as a $1 billion market cap company today. And it just takes time for that reset to happen. And it takes time for the shareholder base, to a certain extent, to turn over, to be able to say, okay, we don't have a lot of shareholders in our stock still who bought it at $3 billion. And they're much more willing to take a price that's a premium to the current as opposed to a price that's sort of based on a historical valuation range that really no longer applies. So there is this transition period. And I think that that's, I think it doesn't surprise me that deals are much lower because there's this
0: period of what I would call just sort of rethinking or readjustment. I know that we honestly talked about managed care being the beneficiaries of the uh, cost structural that's embedded into the hospitals. Probably another area of opportunity, I would think. Yeah. Look, the managed care companies are doing very well. They're having uh,
2: another nice year. They've managed to price ahead of their costs for both utilization and probably not as much price, but... They aren't really exposed to the labor cost issues. They aren't really exposed to supply chains because it's a service business. So those companies continue to chug along nicely. And so there it's it's more just business as usual. You do have to watch to a certain extent if there are large changes in employment for those companies because they have very significant commercial businesses, but even What are noticeable changes in unemployment, you're still talking 1%, 2% of the labor force as opposed to a 20 30% change
0: or something like that. So their businesses really aren't as impacted. I want to throw something out to both of you here, which is the 1,000-pound gorilla in the room, in my humble opinion. Build back better is being discussed again, and it looks like Senator Manchin is making a push for a deal before the midterms, which will likely have a divided government. So it's pretty much now or never. And there is a big fear overhanging biopharma on prescription drug pricing. I mean, is that still a, a real risk, or from what's being talked about now, even if it does move into place, are there other revenue drivers that are going to really be able to be the backbone of that that new spending? I'll take two
2: stabs at that. The first I would say is that what we've seen thus far, the proposals that have been put out there in terms of Build Back Better, there are drug pricing provisions that really weren't that large a risk to the industry. There were definitely some new challenges that would come about because of the changes that were proposed. But they really were not in any way catastrophic to the industry. Certainly probably manageable in terms of a couple percent of earning one way or another. The other thing that I I think is important to highlight is that all of these companies have revalued in terms of the expectations around pricing. You go back five, seven, ten years, and everybody assumed that pharma was going to enjoy positive a couple percent pricing forever, forever. And we're nowhere near that anymore. The embedded expectations for all of these companies are that they maybe break even on price or have across their portfolio, a negative impact annually. So the real risk in terms of the legislation isn't that big. And a lot of that is well reflected in the stocks today.
1: So you, Look beyond the immediate present, though, post midterm, as the outcome of the midterm election likely to be more split of power within the Congress and the president, the outlook for more dramatic drug pricing reform is even lower. So I think that both with the sector.
0: So one other area of potential opportunity is the return of uh, elective procedures, reopening beneficiaries. Obviously, people have foregone <laughs> getting procedures for a couple of years now, either for fear of going to the hospital or not being able to, to get some sort of appointment. Marshall, what type of opportunity or what type of pent up demand are you seeing in this area? Well, we, we aren't seeing pent up demand that we know
2: of come back yet. But it is something that we are watching for and will probably be more of a gradual tailwind than it will be a large bolus. And so what we're looking for, it's really in the medical device sector where people who were planning on having more elective type procedures, things like hip and knee replacements or cataract replacements, Or there are really a number of procedures, even a hernia repair can be deferred. And so there have been issues with hospital staffing, having enough staff, the patients themselves getting COVID and not being either well enough or just not potentially being infectious. And so we are going to see some of that come back over time, particularly in some of these procedures like a hip or a knee that treats degenerative arthritis changes in the hip or a knee, those don't go away because we've had COVID. And those people are still uncomfortable and those procedures are going to come back. So when you look at it, the biggest beneficiary is going to be the med tech group of stocks. And we're watching for that now. And as I say, I think the way it's more going to play out is that were we sort of expecting a 3 4% growth in terms of total procedures, you're probably going to see more like 4%, four, 4.5%, four 5% growth. Because which, which, which can make a huge impact. It can. No, it absolutely can. But you have to sort of put that in the broader context of there are a ton of procedures that could be hundreds of thousands of procedures that were deferred, but we can't accommodate all of that in hospitals today. It's not like hospitals can all of a sudden double the amount of ERs to clear out a year-long backlog of something. So it's going to burn back in over time and probably be a nice tailwind for the medical device
0: manufacturers. Great, great. All right, well, I'm going to end on this question, which I think is really important as we continue to live with COVID, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, am yes. sure we all know many people <laughs> that have gotten COVID uh, recently. It continues to be with us. But what continuing impact on healthcare will COVID have? I know it's obviously turned endemic here, but where are the opportunities going forward? It's been interesting to me to see how
2: expectations have changed around the tail of profitability on covid related products. Pfizer has sold a tremendous amount of vaccine and it's been a tremendous impact financially on on a company like Pfizer. And on top of that, I think there's going to be another wave if you will with Paxlovid, which is their direct acting antiviral. I so think pe- people would take that if they haven't
0: had the vaccine for example.
2: Actually, you take it regardless of vaccine. I mean I mean, look, there are a lot of people who are vaccinated, but still getting COVID, having symptoms, perhaps much less likelihood of going to the hospital. But Paxlovid can be used, I think, as well to reduce that risk further, maybe even reduce the time that you have symptoms, et cetera. And there's going to be, I think, as what we're seeing is that COVID is a lot more persistent as a disease. And so I think we're going to probably see a larger tail on sales of things like Paxlovid than I would have expected, call it, six or 12 months ago. On top of that, there are companies who have the rapid diagnostics, and we've been waiting for those sales to decline and, quote, wither away. And I don't think those sales are going away. I mean, I think people still need to understand whether they got COVID, whether they're infectious, etc., and so the pricing is not what it was at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, in 2020, twenty 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 one. But there's probably more of a tail. Volume. On, the, the volume has <laughs> the volume has been great, and they're still call it fifteen dollars a test. It becomes more of a nice annuity for some of these companies like a Beckton Dickinson or an Abbott who sell
0: those tests. So look, I continue to to watch those companies. It certainly sounds like there's a, a lot of opportunities in healthcare. And you know, we did some analysis and based on where we are in the cycle, healthcare is a very attractive place for investment after the first rate hike, going back for the last four tightening cycles, one year after that first rate hike. Healthcare is the second best performing sector in the S&P 500, and we're only about two and a half months from that March rate hike, so we're early on in that progression. When financial conditions tighten, when uh, equity markets sell off, credit spreads get wider, rates rise. There's been seven instances since 1993 where the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index rose by one or more. Healthcare, the second best outperforming sector, and then when manufacturing PMIs move lower, which tends to lead the economic growth. Healthcare is the number one performing sector, outperforming the S&P 500 by about 6% on a relative basis. So there's a lot of reasons why healthcare looks pretty attractive right now. And obviously, valuations being still pretty attractive on a relative basis is still yet another tailwind. Well, I think that's all the the time that we have today. I'm very happy to have done this podcast with Marshall and Gene. I've learned a lot personally. So thank you so much for taking the time. And it's always a pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you, everybody, for joining June's podcast here. We hope that you'll continue to join us as we move through 2022. I hope everybody has a safe and healthy start to the summer. And we hope to have you back here on another recording of the ClearBridge podcast. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of June 1st, 2022, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither Clearridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or loss
1: arising from any use of this information.